you have to have a high level of psychological resilience. And these cells provide the resilience. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Michael Nels, a molecular geneticist, physician, and author, most recently of The Indoctrinated Brain, How to Successfully Fend Off the Global Attack on Your Mental Freedom. Dr. Nels advocates for a strong mental immune system. His studies look at the critical portion of our brain known as the hippocampus, which processes and indexes memories. But the sad thing is that in our modern society, it doesn't grow, it shrinks. And Alzheimer's is actually a result of the shrinking process. And how might the spike protein contribute to this? What inflammation does is it actually shuts down the production of nerve cells in the hippocampus. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Janja Kellek. Dr. Michael Nels, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Uh, Jan, thank you very much for inviting me. As I told you already, I'm very, very honored to be here. Well, you have become a kind of an expert, or at least an advocate, for something called the mental or psychological immune system. And we don't usually think of things that way, but it actually does make me think of this term that Elon Musk seemed to pioneer, or at least promote, the you know, woke mind virus, if you recall, right? So anyway, tell me about what this mental uh, or psychological immune system is. Well, as a molecular geneticist, I was very hard working on evolutionary re research, evolutionary science. And from an evolutionary perspective, it's totally clear that we have to follow a certain imperative, which is be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> we, we know this already from, from other thoughts, but uh, here it's clear if, we hadn't, if our ancestors hadn't followed, hadn't followed the rules, the two of us wouldn't be sitting here. So it's obvious. But to be fruitful and to multiply, you have to become an adult. And in, in the humans, even you have to be maybe even a grandfather or a grandmother to protect your children and your grandchildren. So with your wisdom, you know, that was at least what it was in the former times up to the end of 19th century. It was shown that if you grow up to become a grandfather or grandmother, the likelihood that your grandchildren survive into adulthood is actually increased. So in order to actually be fruitful and multiply and actually come up to an old age, uh, we need to defend ourselves, and everybody knows we defend against pathogenic microorganisms quite efficiently, actually. And uh, one, my PhD work was actually to identify uh, a gene regulator, and, uh, a gene that regulates other genes of the immune system. And without this gene, we would be actually it would be impossible for our immune system to adapt to viruses. So it was very important work. But this is one part of the immune system we need. But we also have other enemies, uh, enemies uh, which I call pathogenic macroorganisms, compared to the pathogenic microorganisms. Pathogenic macroorganisms. Yeah, I, pathog I, think, I think I know what you're going to get at here. Yeah, usually they come yeah. on two legs, you know. So it's uh, uh, most people think of maybe uh, a kind of uh, uh, animals, a big, a big bear or a tiger or something. But usually the, the, the major enemy of, of humans are other humans. And we were probably uh, uh, enemies of other human species. You know, with those, since maybe 30, 40, 50,000 years ago, there were several uh, room, roaming the, air, the Earth, but now it's only Homo sapiens. But anyway, we have to also have an immune system against pathogenic macroorganisms. And of course, this one is uh, centered in our ability to think, to be curious, to have uh, stamina, you know, a psychological resilience and that we have a memory, that we know how to react based on experience. And this experience doesn't have to be our own experience. 
and also the experience of others. So as children, we were, we are, for example, educated by our parents or grandparents with their wisdom, their stories, and that's why people, humans, are so eager to learn narratives. Narratives are our is the narratives are the food of our mental immune system. So uh, brain is essentially uh, created around the possibility to memorize instantaneously and for long term everything that we experience and what we learn from others. We are social learning machines. It's very interesting that you say that narratives are very important to building your psychological immune system because, you know, I might argue that narratives are actually one of the chief weapons against us right now. The point is we are eager to learn from, from other people. Narratives are the food and we are eager to get as much food as we can for this system. But this, of course, this natural ability can be used against us, like everything that we try a love can be used against us. Every instinct that we have can be used against us. So that's, there's always two sides of the coin, so to speak. But practically speaking, narratives are a good thing. We learn from narratives and uh, only when uh, narrative, only certain narratives are allowed, when thinking is not possible. I mean, if my grandmother tells me a story, I don't have to believe it, you know, I'm allowed to question it. And so that's, that's the, nature, the nature of narratives, because my grandmother made experiences, she conveys them by, by telling me, and then I have my own experiences, and uh, they, if there's a conflict, we discuss and I learn, and we improve, and that's an, a kind of an adaption to, uh, to new situations, and that's exactly what our bodily immune system does. It can adapt to, to variants of viruses, and we have to adapt to variants in um, situations, and that's what our mental immune system can do. Well, and so what's really fascinating to me uh, in The Indoctrinated Brain, of course, your book, you're kind of explaining to me this a little bit more than I had, I guess, come across before about why so many of us might be believing some extremely preposterous narratives that if you know, seemingly to me, you know, some of these narratives at the slightest kind of scratch on the surface, right, they seem to fall apart, yet they, they're also so dominant uh, uh, among so many of us as, as, as human beings. So, so explain to me, this is, there's, there's something happening to our mind, actually. Yeah, I mean, uh, the default mechanism of our thinking is also sometimes called system one thinking. And that goes back uh, to uh, or the old mind thinking compared to the new mind. Uh, some people say it's also the thinking mind. And uh, another Nobel Prize winner, uh, Francis Crick, when he did uh, the science on the, the, nor uh, the neuron neuronal correlate of consciousness, he called the system one essentially the zombie mode because it's not conscious, it's not conscious uh, acting. And uh, that system one is kind of our default way of acting. Uh, learned behavior, but also instinctive behavior. And then we have, in, uh, in addition to that, the actual thinking system, which uh, we call system two, and it all goes back to a Nobel Prize for, for uh, economics, which was given in 2002 to Daniel Kahneman. I don't know if I pronounce him correctly. Kahneman would be German, but I don't know, Kahneman. man. Um, but uh, you might know, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, uh, he got the Nobel Prize uh, by differentiating these two systems. And the system two, the actual thinking system, is a conscious system. And it requires energy. And uh, because we live for 
24 hours a day. Uh, we cannot use up all the energy in the morning and then if the situation arises in the afternoon where we might need system two energy and real thinking, this energy is not there because he, we, he realized with his research that this energy source is limited. So it's limited and so our brain essentially is by default system one and only if our gut feeling somehow, yeah, it's probably actually a gut feeling, tells us something is wrong in this situation. I should really st stop here, think and not act the same way as I usually do in such situations. Then I have to essentially activate system two and invest in energy, mental energy. But uh, what happens if this energy is not there? Or if the gut feeling is not strong enough? Then I continue with system one. And system one, of course, is a system that acts also on, on, on situations which make us afraid. And in, in situations when we are afraid, we follow the mass. And with, without thinking, we just follow the mass because of the mass means safety. The question is, why do people not activate system two? And uh, what can we do to improve that? So explain to me the, what the hippocampus is okay. and its importance in our thinking process and exactly what you just talked about. Yeah, I mean, we, we started this whole conversation with a question um, about the mental immune system. And I mentioned a few, um, a few functionalities of the mental immune system. And uh, the major part, of course, is our autobiographical memory. And that's exactly where the hippocampus come in, comes into play. Well, so, tell me, let, let's just define for me what autobiographical memory means. It's actually our, essentially our mental diary of everything that we experience, that we learn, that we, uh, the narratives which we are told, everything that we have to remember uh, instantaneously because it happens only once, <laughs> like we, we I don't know, we make a walk and we find a nice uh, bookstore, then of course we go home again and we have to remember that there was a bookstore. It's not like uh, a foreign vocabulary, a foreign word that we have to remember, uh, essentially memorize by repeating it 20 times. Mm. We saw the bookstore, we remember it was there and we can't go, uh, go back. And uh, this is actually, actually is what the hippocampus is able to do and it's, he's unique in that. Only the hippocampus is able to remember something that we experience, learn, think, or hear from people one time and we can memorize it for eternity, at least for a whole lifetime. Maybe for eternity if we put it into a narrative and tell the next uh, generation. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this whole information is based on four questions. What happened? When happened? When did it happen? Where did it happen? And how did it, how did it feel? So we have four questions. When, where, what, and how did it feel? It has to evoke some kind of feeling and emotion because the hippocampus has a limited storage capacity and it stores only things that come up with, come with emotions. So if a story has an emotion, we kind of force the hippocampus to, to memorize it. Mm. If it doesn't have any emotion, if it's routine behavior, we don't uh, we don't uh, store it, and it and it indexes it somehow, yeah, right? Exactly. Or categorizes it yeah. exactly. So the when and where is essentially uh, creates coordinates. First of all, in, in the in the space uh, uh, and time continuum in uh, where we live in, uh, so in the outside world, but also in the inside world in our brain, it indexes where and when we have experienced something. And that's the index for the memory content. So what actually did we experience? How did it feel? But the, we need the time and space neurons, actually neurons for that, time and, time and space neurons, 
for the space neurons. Actually, there was a Nobel Prize given, I think, in 2014 uh, for their detection. And 2016, there were the first papers on the time neurons. And they create kind of an index. And, um, and then the hippocampus will rem remember forever. And that we all know that if we want to try to remember what happened the, somewhere, uh, sometime, it's always somewhere and sometime, and then the memory comes back. Mm -hmm. Because that's how we find essentially the memory traces and reconstruct what actually happened at the time. So we need uh, these time and, and space neurons. And, um, and they are located in the hippocampus. And just to, for the viewers who don't know anything about the hippocampus, the hippocampus has its name because it looks like a seahorse. We have two of them here. I always show, like, look like this, show, uh, show it like this. <laughs> they are uh, like the size of a thumb. One percent of the brain mass of, the, of humans is the hippocampus. Uh, they are here in the temporal lobe, very deeply embedded uh, under the neocortex, which uh, is a later uh, development of, uh, of in the evolution of the brain. And they are just kind of you know, under it, uh, under it, and uh, and the neocortex is uh, actually the the what I call the neocortical uh, hard disk, or the hard drive, because every night the content of the information that the hippocampus has stored during the day is uploaded into the neocortical hard drive, and there it is stored. And only the time and space neurons have the access to it and allow us to retrieve the information. So every night when we sleep, the hippocampus essentially is restoring its memory capacity again by uploading the information of the day before. There's only one caveat. The time and space neurons remain. And if you age up to 100, the oldest woman was 122, actually without Alzheimer's, then uh, you have to memorize things for 100, 100 years. So you would run out of time and space neurons to index new memories. And that's why the hippocampus has another unique feature besides its ability to memorize things instantaneously in long term. It has the ability to grow new nerve cells on a daily basis. So it has the potential to grow. So with the wealth of personal experience in our diary, you know, in our mm -hmm. autobiographical memory, the hippocampus, this little seahorse, actually grows. It can grow 1, 2, or 3% every year. But the sad thing is that in our modern society, it doesn't grow, it shrinks. So in adults, the shrinkage rate is on average about 1.4%. In, in our modern society, you're yeah. saying in, somehow there's been studies done that show in one set of circumstances it grows, but in the a average, let's call it average modern society, it shrinks? Absolutely. And uh, in 2016, I published a paper which is called Unified Theory of Alzheimer's Disease. Mm -hmm. And in this paper, I show that if you keep up the growth, you will never get Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's is actually a result of the shrinking process. So neurogenesis, it's called adult hippocampal neurogenesis. So adult because it's neurogenesis, the birth of new neurons in the adult, which is unusual. It happens only in the hippocampus. This adult Neurogenesis in the hippocampus, so the word is adult hippocampal neurogenesis, complicated, but it's important. Adult hippocampal neurogenesis essentially prevents Alzheimer's. And this is based on many functions of, of these neurons um, because they are not only there to make an index, they have additional functions. And these additional functions are very important if we think about system two and system one. So I have maybe to go into this for a few moments, but then the viewers will actually understand why they are so important. So they're important because 
these index neurons are created new index neurons, which are not index neurons yet because they have no, they have not memorized anything when we wake up in the morning, but they are there. So they are fresh, maturing neurons. They are ripening, so to speak, and want to be uh, yeah, um, mature neurons that have a function. But in order to do that, we actually have to, yeah, have to um, learn something new. We have to uh, make an experience. Otherwise, there would be no need for them. Stimulate them in some way. Yeah, we have to right? give them a job. Yeah, memorize X or Y. Mm -hmm. But if we don't give them a job, they actually die. They have an internal program of death. So there's the death program. It's called apoptosis. And uh, so if cells, if particularly nerve cells, are not needed, they kill themselves. It's suicide. So they, their survival instinct, so to speak, is we want to make, make memories. We, we want to make our job. So there are the neuronal correlate of, uh, of human curiosity. If you have these cells, you are curious. If you don't have them, if they're not produced, your curiosity is down. But your curiosity is not everything. If you are curious, you enter a new space. You enter a new, you, you ask questions that might be, yeah, you might not like the answers. So, so the, the, everything that is new is per se uh, uh, has the risk of being dangerous in some way or other. Sure. So in order to, to still you know, follow your curiosity, you have to have a high level of psychological resilience. And these cells provide the resilience. They're actually dictating how high your stress level is if you experience something new. And all antidepressives that are out there do nothing else but activating the production of these nerve cells. So if you, in an animal experiment, for example, you stop the production of these nerve cells, all antidepressives that are out there would stop their, their function. They're not working anymore. So it's key that you activate neurogenesis in the hippocampus to increase your resilience and to get out of depression. But you're telling me that, that these are getting smaller. And so this is, of course, you know, reflected in the you know, increased levels of depression and Alzheimer's and, mm -hmm. Absolutely. and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. One important function of, of, if, of thinking System, system two thinking is that our frontal brain, which contains the, what we call the working memory, the working memory is only currents in your brain. It doesn't fix any thought. So if you, if you think about thinking, you have, uh, and you want to change your lifestyle, or you want to really go into deep into a, a problem that might affect many people, it becomes quickly very complicated, the d different alternatives that you have to consider. So it becomes quickly complicated. Now our frontal brain, the, the working memory, can only keep four or five, maybe six items parallel in, in, in action, so to speak, or in your, in your working memory. Actually, the number of items reflect your, uh, your IQ, IQ. It's very important, actually, when we come to that later. So intelligence is essentially reflected by the, the number of items you can keep simultaneously active in your working memory. But it's only four or five, and a complicated thought might require 10, 15, maybe hundreds of, of intermediate thoughts that need to be stored. And only the hippocampus can do that. So when we talk about the mental energy that is required for system two, we talk actually about the storage capability of the hippocampus. And if you are running out of new neurons that become time and space neurons for these intermediate thoughts, then your battery is empty. You have no, 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 no memory capacity anymore. 
at least not really. You, you still can. Now come to that when we come to the process of indoctrination. You can still overwrite, but this is a, a different story. But having no no index neurons left means you are what we call scientifically ego depleted. So you are so you are you are exhausted, and we all know that if after a lo uh, half a day or d uh, almost the whole day of of social activities, uh, narratives you have learned, discussions you have had, or just thinking on your on your on your on your desk, uh, fills up all these index neurons that were available from the night before, and then of course there are none left. And when a new thought comes in, well. What do you do with it? There's no storage capacity, and you rather you know, stay back and say, tomorrow, let's sleep, I, I do it tomorrow. That's the cause of ego depletion, which happens during the day. But of course, if you wake up in the morning, you have no new nerve cells produced. If adult hippocampal neurogenesis is not working, then you are starting the day ego depleted, and uh, you are not able to activate system two, and you're in a permanent state, permanent state of system one. You are essentially permanent in the zombie mode. You say when you know actual good reason to fear something as enters into our system, that compromises the ability to to create these, right? No, it, yeah, it, yeah, it has two two effects actually. One effect is that fear creates a high level of stress. We know that high level of stress hormones undermine the production of nerve cells in the hippocampus. So EU stress, I mean, EU, the, the healthy stress, is good if we have a purpose in life, it's good. We do things that we like to do, they should be challenging because they create new memories and the hippocampus is happy with new memories, the index neurons are happy, so, and we need a certain stress level to actually achieve something. But if it's becoming into a situation of distress, particularly a chronic, chronic distress, then actually the production of these nerve cells is down. And it makes a lot of sense if, from an from a evolutionary perspective. In a situation where, where your life is at stake, you know, where you're threatened, yeah. uh, you need all the energy to fight or to for flight or whatever, or for freeze. <laughs> but you need, right. the, all, you need all the energy. And in this situation, the highest levels of stress hormones uh, essentially stop any production in the, in the body of new cells. So wound healing is, 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 is for example, uh, stopped. Um, the regeneration of blood cells is stopped. So chronic stress, that's why, for, for example, people use uh, steroids to, um, to inhibit uh, uh, cancer cells and growing because it stops the production of cells. And the same happens in the brain. You know, the, the, the neurogenesis, also reduction of cells, it stops. But it's usually an acute situation. If it becomes a chronic situation, then you have a chronic stop but based on, 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 on the high level of steroids. And then, of course, uh, you have a damage to your mental immune system, which consists of curiosity, yeah, a high level of uh, psychological resilience, and the memory function. And then comes the second thing. If you have this fear porn, these narratives that are presented to you, uh, you force, because they cause fear, they cause emotions. And emotions cause the, the hippocampus to memorize. But think about it, you have no index neurons, but particularly in the evening, you are tired, you are exhausted, you are ego depleted, and you get the, the news that uh, the next world war, the war against climate will kill all, all humanity. Then you have these uh, perma pandemics, as the World Economy Forum uh, calls them, and which uh, kill everybody, you know, so we are constantly in a situation of being killed. 
Um, so at least in, uh, from the narr narrative point of view, and uh, you have no index neurons, then you force the information into the hippocampus nevertheless, but only on, it costs something. It costs the index neurons that have been used before. They are overwritten. Because the hippocampus will remember that the day before I've learned this new story about uh, about whatever you know. Basically, this is literally brainwashing. What you're describing. It's right. yeah. It's re It's really the name washing comes into place here. It's yeah. it's, it's more than even washing. It's replacing. Mm -hmm. You replace essentially former memories, maybe good memories, maybe things your grandmother told you. Everything that your life experience and which makes up actually your individuality is replaced by um, by essentially a commodity. What everybody learns by the by the news, is, and you, it's replaced, and uh, you are left as a human being that, at, 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 at the extreme stage, is only remembering the narratives that create fear and, 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 and sorrow, and, uh, and you are a frightful person left that uh, only wants to have one thing, uh, an end to everything. <laughs> Please end the horror. You know, this is already putting the fear of God into me as you're describing, you know, the sort of the mechanism how this works. But then you actually have another part to your hypothesis, which is involves this spike protein. There are many measure, many, many reasons why the neurogenesis is down. Some of them acted already before 2020. And that's, uh, if you consider, I'll come to the spike protein in a moment, but I think it's very important that people understand the spike protein is, has some function, a very bad function, but uh, we are already in a situation where our mind is not working well enough in the society. Mm -hmm. We are already a system one driven society. The majority of people have not the ability, at least not enough to engage system two when it's needed. Mm -hmm. And it's not their fault because uh, we live in a, in, a, in a modern society where the hippocampus is not growing but shrinking. And you actually asked me, and I skipped the answer because I put something in between and thought we forgot about it, but the point is, before 2020, the hippocampus was already shrinking. And in my paper, The Unified Theory of Alzheimer's Disease, I show what the reasons are why it's shrinking and how we can actually remedy it. So and, and if you remedy it, not only that you prevent Alzheimer's, you also allow your brain to grow instead of to shrink and to be open for new thoughts and, uh, and you are more happy because your, your psychological resilience is much higher. And, and I might add, I mean, from what I'm understanding from all of this, your individuality, your, your kind of uniqueness, your, your, your own variant of critical thinking, all of that grows. All of that grows and that has not only implications for you as a person, it has also implications for society. Think of a society that is, uh, essentially enters a, uh, comes across a problem that is important for the whole society. Then you have to find a solution. And how likely is it that you find a solution if the whole population is only consists of people that, whose personality, personalities consist of the narratives that the leaders gave us? It's much more likely that you find somebody with a solution that has a unique individuality and by chance comes up with the best idea. And as soon as one person uh, sparks the idea, uh, it, it's like a, a fire spreading because everybody knows about it. I mean, one person invented the, 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 the mobile phone and everybody has one, you know, so it's not like everybody has to invent it and that goes for every thought. So the broader the individuality is of the, each individual 
And the more individuals we have with a broad individuality, the better the immune system of a society. But the reverse is also true. If you want to dominate a society, you have to reduce the number of people and you have to reduce the individuality. And at the moment, both is happening. Well, right. I guess you're alluding to the excess mortality For that example, we're seeing yeah. in the population. Particularly in, right in a part yeah. of the population, which is the, like from 16 to 40, 64. And just, I, I want to sort of touch on this, but you, do you think these are environmental factors that are causing this? Is it diet? Is it just, you know, is it video games? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there, there's, there's um, so many different elements. If you to, to be honest, it's all of the above. Right. It's all of the above and much more. So it's, uh, I actually produced from my book, uh, at the time I wrote a book in 2013, it's called The Alzheimer's Lie, and, uh, which essentially is the basis of the paper I published, Unified Theory. And there I show that not, uh, Alzheimer's is not caused by aging. Uh, age is just a prerequisite because it takes a few decades for the shrinking of the hippocampus mm -hmm. to reach a point, kind of a point of no return, where Alzheimer's uh, is developing. So. Um, just because something needs decades doesn't mean it's caused by the decades. Just out of curiosity, how easy is it to measure your hippocampus? It's actually quite easy. When we talk about what we can do to improve its, its size, uh, there are fantastic studies out there uh, which show actually that the theory is correct. You can, at, at any age, you can start to grow it and regrow it again. And that's uh, the nice story that I'm going to tell. And everybody who reads my book will find out what he can do to improve the size of his hippocampus. So let's go back to these, you know, neuropathogenic substances. Presumably, they have an impact. And you're basically, you know, we, we know that spike is somehow, you know, neuroinflammatory, neuropathogenic. That's been documented in the literature. Everything that stresses uh, the, the, uh, the hippocampus uh, will cause damage. And you can imagine if you have an acute inf inflammation, let's say a respiratory disease or whatever, then your immune system reacts to it and it starts to produce first pro-inflammatory cytokines. Cytokines that activate the immune system to fight against the pathogenic microorganism. And in this situation, you're usually sick. And sick is, of course, uh, just a reflection of the fight is going on internally. Mm -hmm. And you have to withdraw, of course, you have to lay down, you have to sleep. And so it's clear that it makes sense actually to shut down the hippocampus. You are not eager to make new experiences. You're not outgoing. You're withdrawing. So what inflammation does is it actually shuts down the production of nerve cells in the hippocampus for the time being. So an acute inflammation is pretty much the same like an attack which increases the stress hormones. It shuts down the hippocampus. And it's not a bad thing. Uh, again, here, if it's chronic, it becomes, uh, becomes a bad thing. Or if the inflammation is not a really caused by a virus, but maybe by something else, just mimicking a virus being there. And that's what the spike protein is, is doing when you inject the mRNA. You produce a spike protein in your body, anywhere in your body, and then the, the SARS-CoV-2 we know in meanwhile has been fabricated to in include this furine cleavage site into the mRNA of the spike the spike gene, which then causes uh, the production of the spike protein, which has this protein cleavage site of this molecular scissor that we have in all, all in our cells, mm -hmm. which we call furin. So furin cleavage uh, is cleaving essentially the, uh, the spike protein two halves. The outer side, the S1 subunit, is able now to transverse or cross the blood-brain barrier. 
and grow us into the brain. So let me, let me just stop for a moment, uh, just to kind of disambiguate this a little bit. So the furin cleavage site, just to kind of remind our viewers, typically we think about it from the perspective of it being a very unusual feature in coronaviruses, one of the things that's sort of a hint that it very likely did come from a lab. It makes it the virus easy to infect humans, but you're saying it also has another function. Yeah, exactly. It has yeah. another function. The main function is to increase its, its infection, infectiousness. Mm -hmm. But uh, practically speaking, it allows now the spike protein to be internally shed, so, so to speak, from, from the production side and uh, from the virus, but even also from the mRNA when it's injected. So it really doesn't make a difference in the, at first glance if you are infected or injected. You produce, your cells produce the spike protein, it's being cleaved by furin, and the S1 subunit was shown to be very effective in trans, uh, tr um, entering the brain by essentially um, crossing the blood-brain barrier, which is usually a protection side of the brain against the bloodstream, so that not toxins and so forth cannot enter. And so let, let me jump in again. So, you know, the reason this uh, lipid nanoparticle delivery platform was used, right, was ostensibly to be able to get this mRNA into cells because cells are set up to avoid getting foreign mRNA into them, foreign DNA, foreign RNA. So yeah, this, absolutely. And so, so is this, uh, this, this is a separate, separate. ability to it's get separate. into cells. Yeah, no, it's not in the yeah, not, yeah, in the cell, not actually in the cells, actually into the space around the cells. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, particularly this, the space around the cells in your brain. Mm -hmm. So, what you already mentioned, the lipid nanoparticles were chosen to deliver the mRNA to the cells. It's it's actually strange because if you want to immunize somebody, you can just use the protein and inject the protein or so, or yeah, inhale the protein and you create immunity where it it uh, hits the immune cells. Uh, why the mRNA was chosen is really unclear. But no, it's not unclear. You had to use it probably for this purpose in uh, the lipid nanoparticles. But what was clear is the lipid nanoparticles were developed specifically to, cross, to get chemotherapeutics against cancer in the brain into the brain to cross the blood-brain barrier. So they have chosen a vehicle for the mRNA which was developed to actually enter the brain. And that doesn't make any sense for a respiratory virus uh, to protect against respiratory viruses because they never enter the brain. So, so you don't need any immunization in the brain. And, uh, but the, the, the problem is, of course, the lipid nanoparticles per se are inflammatory, right. but only for, cause of the, for the short time they are present. Mm -hmm. The longer time present, of course, is the mRNA, which was modified to stay long in the cells. Mm -hmm. And what is also shown, meanwhile, is that the spike protein itself, particularly the S1 subunit after the cleavage, is very stable. And it can enter by itself. doesn't matter where it is produced. Even if your, the cells in your toe produce <laughs> the, the, uh, the, uh, the spike protein, mm -hmm. the S1 subunit can travel to, through the bloodstream essentially anywhere and, of course, can enter the brain and stay there. And there it was shown to activate the, uh, the immune system of the brain. So the brain consists not only of, of brain cells, of course, it consists only of brain cells, but some of the brain cells are actually immune cells. We call them microclear. And the microclear has receptors for spike proteins. Mm -hmm. They have them already. They have not learned that uh, in, uh, during your life. They learn that through evolution. 
and the receptor is called TLR4, this receptor recognizes the spike protein as a pathogen. And now, of course, it's tricked because he sees the spike protein and thinks there's the virus. But of course, the spike protein is just there. It has no virus with it. Mm -hmm. But the immune system cannot, cannot differentiate. And it activates now the, the fight against this virus, which isn't there. And we start an inflammation. But the spike protein doesn't go away. The inflammation doesn't go away. We have a chronic inflammation. And we know that the proteins that are produced, in, for example, interleukin-1, interleukin-6, or TNF-alpha, just names, but these, um, these pro-inflammatory cytokines are the most potent inhibitors of adult hippocampal neurogenesis that we know of. So if you have a chronic neuroinflammation, you have to have a chronic inhibition of the adult hippocampal neurogenesis. And that's probably the main cause that people are, uh, are having brain fog, having, you know, this spicopathy uh, after infection or injection. I mean, basically, you're telling me that a combination of this fear porn, as I, I'm not sure I like that word, but okay, and essentially spike production or prolonged spike production in our body, the combination of that as an extra negative effect on us to be able to have good hippocampal activity. Yeah, I mean, the fear itself plus the spike protein essentially are probably sufficient to stop completely uh, the production of new nerve cells in the hippocampus, which means your mental immune system is shut down. So and then, of course, the content of the fear become, and the narratives essentially then become uh, still introduced as memories in your brain, but overriding in a second step previous memories, and then you eradicate essentially your personality. Now, one, qu one quick question. You know, you could be creating memories. You could also be creating new memories yourself that are overwriting past memories. It's not necessarily no. these fear-laden narratives, which are the only thing that's kind of overriding at this point. Yeah, sure. So even if I'm completely ego depleted in the evening, which I usually am, then um, and, and a friend calls me and says, hey, my daughter is sick, can you help me? And I, I'm surely not saying, no, I'm ego depleted, uh, let me alone, I want to go to sleep now. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm sure going to help him. And, and if it's not routine, I cer certainly have to invest and think about what's, what, what I need to do. And of course, uh, I will remember. So what will happen, obviously, is that uh, since no index neurons are available, new ones, I will override old ones. But of course, better safe than sorry. You know, I, I, it's better to help him and then to try to remember maybe things that uh, or keep a memory of the old times. The, 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 the present is more important than the past in this, in this situation. But it, that's, an, that's an exception. It's not what usually happens in the evening. And, uh, but of course, if it would happen every day, if I overdo it every day, then, then uh, new memories will always override old ones. That's, uh, that's, I think that's a default mechanism of how our brain works. You see, if I, if I wake up in the morning and have essentially no fresh in index neurons because of the, of the spike protein, but also lifestyle, as I said already, to, before 2020, sure. we were already in a situation where the production was down for other reasons. Uh, if the production is down and I wake up in the morning, I'm not engaging in complex thought. I just want to make my routine life. I want to be in routine. I don't want to question anything. I want to just go along and be happy. Uh, of course, then nothing is there that overrides. Uh, this one day looks like the next day and the next day and the next day, and I can't remember. The week is over, and there's not much I memorized from the week because it was the week like the week before.
but, uh, but in situations where I'm now forced to memorize because every day we have a new rule about coronavirus, a new rule about environment, a new rule about the climate change that we have to obey now. Uh, all these new rules which are forced into our brain because they have consequences if we don't follow them. You know, we might get a ticket, we might uh, go to jail, whatever. Uh, so we are forced to memorize all these things. So this crisis situation that I described with my friend calling me is something that happens on a routine basis to people that have an ego depleted mind. And then, of course, it becomes really uh, problematic because then you force an override of all your personality in the long run. So there's there, there's two things here that come to mind. First of all, I can't help but think of, you know, 1984, right? Sort of the eternal present, mm -hmm. right? There's, we, we, you have, you become have, you have no sense of history anymore. I mean, this is of course an extreme uh, vision, no, but, it's, but, but, but unfortunately but, it's not, but, but you see it's overriding history. That's right. exactly what's happening. So that, that, that's one side. The other side is, you know, as people, you know, get into, let's say, having more of these uh, uh, narratives which are being inserted into your mind over time and more of the population has that. That population itself self-reinforces. Perhaps they're in a position, they're in work in media or they have a lot of friends and they're an influential person and it ends up becoming potentially, you tell me what you think, but like a, vi a vicious cycle fostering exactly those kinds of narratives even further, never mind the sort of, you know, incessant drumbeat propaganda which some of these things have been pushed with, right? Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, it, it's, it's really a problem and that's why, but of course these people like to have their own mind or they stay with themselves usually and I, I, we all I think, I think experience that uh, in my family we have a, a wall between the one group and the other group suddenly. We have birthday parties where we are not invited being not vaccinated, you know. I mean uh, clearly there was a big wall but to be honest the people on the other side of the wall were before 2020 kind of strange to me already because they were not curious about what for example I was doing. Uh, it was really funny sometimes I I, I was really asked what I'm doing. I said, I'm just writing a new book. There never came the question yeah, about what. You know, it, it was not interested. You know, they, they already lived in their, in their cozy uh, system one and didn't want to be confronted because they knew I, if I write a book, it, 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 has, it has meaning, I hope. <laughs> well, so, so here's another thought. You know, obviously not everybody in society is going to be this, you know, groundbreaking, visionary, critical thinker, scientist, whatever, right? But but the, the issue is more that, you know, what value do we place on that? And I think, you know, one of the things that strikes me as having been made America great, you know, an amazing country is we've sort of, we've, we've, we've put on a pedestal the, 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 the people who think differently, the people who challenge degree and the people who are able to rise through merit, you know, and, and, and you know, figure out incredible things. And it, it's almost like our, in our current cultural, sociopolitical moment, and maybe this isn't just the U.S., this, let's, maybe this is the West as a whole from the looks of it, to me anyway, um, we're, we, we're not valuing that somehow. And this is, you know, again, everything you've just talked about, this whole hypothesis kind of jives with why we might not be valuing that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It, it would explain it because uh, if somebody is a critical thinker, he introduces critical thought. Critical thought is different from what you like to hear maybe. So you have to be curious. You have to have a high threshold of uh, resilience to, to dive into what he is telling you because he's telling you something that you might not want to hear because it challenges maybe your lifestyle. 
and so, so you, you withdraw actually, unless you are curious. And that means you have a, a strong mental immune system because a strong mental immune system means you would love to learn what he has to tell because it might improve your life. Mm -hmm. But before you can do that, the prerequisite for that is you have a strong mental immune system. And tell you what, when, uh, when Alzheimer's, Alois Alzheimer's, discovered the disease, it was a curiosity. In, in, in 1906, it was a total curiosity. In textbooks, the biggest textbooks, 30 years later on neuropathology, Alzheimer's was not even mentioned as a disease. Hmm. So it, it, it was totally uncommon 100 years, 200 years ago. Hmm. So when we talk about the times when we honored people that changed the world, that created the American institution, uh, constitution or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, that was a time where the majority of the people still lived more naturally. Yeah? All the things that we are lacking today and were lacking before 2020 causes the hippocampus to shrink. And so, it, but, uh, and the shrinking causes Alzheimer's, but Alzheimer's was not present in the early, 19, uh, early 20th century. So at that time, people were, the society was a different one. It was more freedom loving. And nowadays we have a society where the shrinking egos follow the herd. And the herd is, uh, is taught by the narratives where they have to run to. And, this, and they run to, uh, to, uh, to a new uh, global, uh, global governance systems, system that is uh, reducing our freedom. And we really have to make the, the herd turn around. In this sort of situation, I can also imagine uh, a scenario where, you know, a whole bunch of us decide, you know, we're, the, we're actually the enlightened people. We're the ones who have bigger hippocampus. We're the ones that, that uh, are able to think critically and, and change society. And now we are going to look down on all those other people, right? Uh, and I actually, I see this a lot. My st brief study of history tells me that whenever that happens and is allowed to foster, uh, atrocities happen basically. Yeah, absolutely. People always had different abilities. Some people are better in one thing, some people are better in other things. Uh, some people are in the old times better hunters, some better fishermen, some others do better, better make maybe fire, whatever. So, so everybody has his speciality and that's what a social system is about, that everybody has his, hopefully has the chance to do the job he wants to do. Uh, and it's not forced to do anything. And so some people invent, uh, 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 for example, the mobile phone and others use it. Does it mean that the people who only use it but are not able to invent it are uh, 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 inferior people? I don't think so. When I drove to the lab and I did basic research for over 20 years, I drove in the morning to the lab with uh, taking the bus. I was happy that there's a bus driver taking me there. I was happy that actually I was really thinking about that the streets are paved, you know, somebody has to do that. So if everybody would only drive into a lab and doing research, uh, how, do we, how do I get into the lab? So everybody has a job in a society and, uh, and, and, and some people would maybe be overwhelmed doing research 
the way I did it, and others might actually be uh, saying, well, I'd rather be an artist, or I'd rather be in whatever. People should choose whatever they want to choose. And, uh, but at one point, certain groups have a responsibility if they have an idea how to change things. Well, right. So that's, I, I think that's right. I think that's the right way to think about it. Like if you do have this awareness and this, uh, you know, critical thinking capability and, and so forth, that actually, it's more than it, it puts you above others. It actually gives you more work. Uh, my wife was really fearful to, that I, she was really fearful that I write the book because she said, well, we, we might be getting attacked by just having this book out. It's not easy. But I said, uh, well, I know that. And you see, I'm the type of person, if I see a banana uh, in a skin on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a street, on a, on a, on a pavement. You're going to move that. You're going to move, move the peel, because, right. Because right. I, I just fear that somebody uh, might step on it and, and, and fall and break a leg. It may just a metaphor. But, but if you see something, if you have the knowledge that something is wrong, I think you have to, uh, as, a, as an individual in a society, you have the obligation to do something about it. And so with knowledge comes, uh, comes responsibility. Isn't this the thinking possibly of some of these, you know, budding technocrats as well? Like, well, we have to, you know, sort of make sure society runs properly. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I can believe they feel the same way, that they know something that others don't know, that they have the power about certain knowledge that they want to introduce now into society. But the problem is, um, to solve a problem that is complex, uh, even if the question is if there's a problem at all, let's say climate change or whatever, and, uh, and maybe there are other problems uh, that we are, which are more demanding and more necessary to solve, just think about the plastic which we have in the oceans and so forth. I mean, there are many th things we should rather maybe talk about, but that's a different topic. So the point is, uh, as a society, a society can only be as strong, as we already mentioned, as the more individuals are there that have, a, well, have an opinion. And the ideas have to be, you have to be allowed to challenge the ideas. In science, when you, when you come up with an idea, uh, you're not saying this is the truth. You're saying this is a proposition. This is a theory. So. When I published my paper on, on Alzheimer's, how it can be prevented, I said it's uni unified theory. I'm not saying it's the unified truth about Alzheimer's. It's unified theory, and even my book here is a theory. And I show the theory, and at the end, like a prosecutor, I talk to, the, to my reader and say, now you are the jury. You can decide if my theory is correct for you. But even if it's wrong, it doesn't really matter because uh, the science that I, propose, uh, that I show is true. The hippocampus is shrinking in our society, no matter if, it's, uh, if it shrinks on purpose by, by certain measures or if it uh, happens just by uh, an yeah, emergent accident. property of a lot of different Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's happening systems, by accident yeah. because how our culture somehow evolved. It had right. some idea and it's a collateral damage that our hippocampus suffers. But that's, that's all possible. But at the end of the day, I think uh, what we need is, like in science, we need an open mind. We need to be allowed to talk about the different options. And, uh, and we have to have a receptive community that is willing to accept these alternative thoughts and think about them. They, are, they should be free to, to pick the best thought. Foundationally, and this is you know, kind of as we finish up, I really want to discuss is how you propose to help people with that. Because basically you're arguing un that unbeknownst to us, to you and to me and to uh, frankly everyone, our ability to think has been reduced. Mm -hmm. 
and we need to regain that. So how are we going to do it? Your question reminds me a little bit of the situation when we were flying off. My daughter accompanied me here to, to fly to, to the United States. And uh, the first thing that this flight attendant was telling us, uh, if uh, the oxygen is essentially uh, down because uh, for some kind of break, you have to take the oxygen mask. You should help yourself first before you help others. And that's, uh, though that's the first step in my book in the last chapter. Uh, help yourself first. Make sure that your mental abilities are the best because even if you are already able to think, you, I, I believe you can do a couple of things to make your thinking better. Uh, reduce a couple of deficiencies in your diet, whatever. There are a couple of hints to that in the book. I don't want to go into that in deep in depth, but you can first you help, you help yourself. Cre create even a stronger mental immune system, a, a stronger uh, self of yourself. And then if you have done that, you are more able to help others. And, and don't go back and just draw a line and say, well, these are the others, they are uh, inferior, whatever you alluded to. I don't think like this. You need them. We need a maturity. And, uh, and maybe you cannot reach to every, uh, out to everybody or not everybody is responsive to that. But over time, I think more and more people will be. And there's also a scientific uh, foundation to this, to this thinking. And I actually show that in the book. Uh, in the mid of the, ninth, of the 20th century, uh, Salomon Ash did an experiment, confirmation experiment. Mm. So in this experiment, 12 people were asked an opinion about the length of a certain, um, um, what is called, um, a line. Yeah, you have your three lines, A, B, C, and a fourth line which responds to one of the three. It was totally clear that B is identical in size like the one you are confronted with. Uh, but 11 of the 12 were asked to say it's A. And the twelfth one was the actual uh, yeah, person that was essentially challenged. And he learned, wow, it's A, 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 A. Wow, but it looks like B. But why do, why do they all they say A? But it was interesting. 80% didn't follow their common sense and say B. They said actually A because the majority said A. And, but it's interesting. When one of the other 11 was, uh, was asked to say B, then the 12th person was not on its own anymore. Uh -huh. And the likelihood that it also said B, despite the 10 others that no, uh, A in this case, was actually increased by 40%. In other words, a little bit of courage goes the long way. I, I, I do want to mention this because you, uh, in one of your books, you talk about the effects of uh, the uh, like microdoses of lithium yeah, right? because as because it's an anti-inflammatory, as yeah, as is. helping with uh, with 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 Alzheimer's. Is that right? Yeah, on my website you can actually find an article I uh, wrote about this, because uh, chronic inflammation is essentially caused caused which is caused by the spike protein, but also by other uh, things that I describe in the book. But the spike protein protein, of course, is very dominant here in current times. Uh, this inflammatory process can be. Um, uh, undermine the, the, the vicious cycle of inflammation that actually occurs in the brain, and I show this vicious cycle on my website in this article, is, uh, can be interrupted and stopped by, by lithium. Not lithium that you use by, in, in bipolar disorder, in manic depression, where you use really high levels which are almost toxic with a very small therapeutic window. Uh, I talk about doses which are 100 times smaller, which I call actually essential doses because based on our natural history of human evolution, 
we have essentially grown our yeah, mental capabilities most likely in an era where we actually were not gatherers and hunters, but fishermen and hunters at the, uh, and, and gatherers at the ocean in South Africa. There are a lot of evidence for that. And you have to think about the lithium content in the ocean is 100 times higher than in freshwater. So if you eat fish from of mussels or yeah, um, seafood from, from, from the ocean, then uh, you actually take in a few milligrams of lithium a day. And this small amount of lithium is able to break essentially this vicious cycle activated by spike TLR4 and then activating the immune system by producing interleukin-1. This vicious cycle that essentially turns around because now the, the hippocampus has a low, a low um, resilience, you get depression. Depression means toxic levels of uh, steroids, for example, activating the cycle again, and you're in a vicious cycle. This vicious cycle can be broken, and it was shown from the University of Buffalo in New York, at least in test cases of 10 people that were given a low dose of lithium that nine immediately or in very short time got rid of the brain fog uh, a consequences of spicopathy. And in my paper, Unified Theory of Alzheimer's Disease from 2016, I have a whole chapter on lithium low dose because it was shown to actually stop the Alzheimer progression. Yeah, I mean, absolutely fascinating. It makes me wonder, you know, of course, we've had many uh, uh, doctors who are treating let's call it spikeopathy in its various forms, right? And I'm very curious how lithium fits into their, their treatment regimens. There's something I'll be looking into now. I think yeah. I it, it would fit into it because uh, lithium not only uh, essentially breaks this vicious cycle of neuroinflammation, it also is sh was shown to activate neurogenesis in the hippocampus. And it was shown, and all the papers are cited actually in my, my article, and, um, and it was also shown to activate on what we call autophagy. Autophagy, autophagy. Autophagy, autophagy, meaning the, the removal of proteins, uh, microorganelles that are not functioning anymore. And there's one paper mentioned, uh, I also cited in my article, that proposes that it might also work against uh, a, a, a resident spike protein in the brain. So much to read up on. Um, your website, briefly, can you remind us what that is? Yeah, it's very simple. It's michael-nels, nels, N-E-H-L-S, michael-nels.com. Uh, Excellent. Well, Dr. Nels, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you all for joining Dr. Michael Nels and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.